begin this morning with uh, an Old Testament story from the book of Numbers. Uh, this story comes from a time when uh, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. They have been led by God through, through the Red Sea. They've been uh, liberated through the experience of the Exodus. They've escaped from slavery. Uh, but now they're not terribly happy in the wilderness. And uh, so we pick up the story in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the, the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And then turning to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, the third chapter, the words of Jesus, who says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then finally, these words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, the first letter, where he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Amen. Um, a Denver woman was telling her pastor of an experience that she had, which seemed to her to be a sign of the times. Uh, she was telling him that uh, she went into a, a jewelry store looking to buy a necklace. And she told the man behind the counter, I'd like a gold cross. 
and the, and the man uh, looked at the stock in the display and asked uh, the customer, do you want a plain one or one with a little man on it? Many people are simply oblivious to the meaning of the cross. It's nothing more than a piece of jewelry or a symbol that uh, adorns church steeples and marks people's graves. Who's that little man on the cross? Why is he there? Ruins a perfectly good piece of jewelry, actually. This is indeed a sign of the times. People today don't know who Jesus is. Others who may know something of the meaning of the cross are offended by it and wish that every public display of the cross would disappear. Hence the various lawsuits brought to bear against particular crosses that have been on public display for decades in various parts of the country. But uh, they've now become an issue. Well, this is nothing new. The cross has always been controversial. In biblical days, the Greeks found the cross to be offensive because the cross didn't square with their wisdom. What sort of God would die on a cross? Just isn't logical. Just not right. To the Greek mind, that sounded like just a, a bunch of foolishness wasn't wisdom. For the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block, for it didn't square with their, with their expectations of the Messiah. Surely the Messiah would come as a conquering hero, not as a suffering servant who would die a shameful death on a cross. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that, that said, Cursed be the one who dies on a tree. And so in the Jewish mind, that's simply out of the question. The Messiah would not die on a tree. He would not be nailed to a cross. So the cross may be nothing but a piece of jewelry to some or an offensive symbol to others, but to, others, to, to us who are followers of Jesus, the cross is at the very heart of our faith. The cross is nothing less than the supreme sign of God's healing, redemptive love. I like the story of the little girl who came into a church sanctuary for the very first time, and she looked up in the, you know, the chancel area where the pulpit was and everything, and, and she said, Mom, what's that giant plus sign doing up there? And you know that's a pretty good app description of the cross, isn't it? Definition of the cross. It's a giant plus sign. It's a positive, affirmative symbol that says God loves us and God cares about us and is for us in every way. I also like uh, the, the theologian, a theologian um, by the name of Ken Bailey, his definition of the cross in one sentence costly demonstration of unexpected love. 
That's worthy of memorization, the cost. A costly demonstration of unexpected love. Get those words in your head. I'll, I'll quiz you next week to see if you remember. Costly because it cost God the life of his own son, whose body was broken for us, his blood shed for us. And it was an unexpected demonstration of love because it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. It is while we were estranged from God, while we were enemies of God, that he was willing to lay down his life for us, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be made right with God again. Man, truly, God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. So the cross may have been foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, but to Christians, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the salvation, the very love of God in action to people who don't deserve it. Now, at first thought, it seems really strange that uh, what was such a horrible method of execution in Roman times should become the central symbol of our Christian faith. I mean, just when you think about it, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's kind of like wearing a, a little electric chair around your neck or a, a hangman's noose. But the cross has been transformed from an object of horror to a thing of beauty because of what transpired there. Because on the cross in the form of the crucified one, the love of God was displayed in all its glory, and you and I were rescued from the power of sin and death. So the cross is a giant plus sign, a reminder that God so loved the world, God so loved you and me, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And John reminds us that God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Ever since the fall from paradise, when human beings made their own choices, they rebelled against God, the world has been in a state of decay, and people are perishing. People are dying apart from God. That's the default mode of the world. It's given to decay. Everything is perishing. Isn't it, therefore, a thing of wonder that God should put into motion a rescue plan to save people who would otherwise perish. We are saved from evil, from death, through Christ alone. And that is an incredible gift. Isn't it a wonder that we have a way out so that we can move from death to life? And God provided that way out through Christ who died for us breaking the power of sin and death. God is for us, not against us. The cross is not a sign of condemnation. 
And sometimes we get the peculiar idea that God is all about judgment and he just delights in sending people to hell. I mean, some people just have a negative image of God and they can't get over it and that's how they think God is. And sadly, some churches and some preachers kind of lift that image of God up and they want to scare people into the kingdom, but it doesn't work. You know, turn or burn, forsake or bake. They want to scare people into hell. It's the people that you meet in front of Husky Stadium on game day with loudspeakers saying, you guys are all going to hell. You know, what a way to ruin God's reputation. You know, there's freedom of speech, but man, do those guys have to have loudspeakers? I mean, really? God is for us, not against us. And how do we know that? All we have to look to is Jesus himself, right? The way he lived, what he taught, what he did. He is the, the embodiment of God himself. So the cross reminds us that we have a God who loves you and me so much that there is no end to which he will not go to keep us from perishing. If people refuse God's love, they bring judgment down upon themselves and they send themselves to hell. That's a choice that people actually make. God is for us, not against us, and wants only to bestow healing and wholeness and life. Now, in the Old Testament, there is an interesting parallel to the cross of Christ, and you probably picked it up as we read, right? Because we read in the story of the book of Numbers about the people of Israel who are wandering around and they're becoming desperate about their situation. They don't like the food that God's supplying them. And uh, so they begin to complain and they begin to moan. They don't know really where their next meal is coming from. They blame God. They blame Moses. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. They've forgotten how awful it, it was. And according to the story, poisonous snakes fell upon them. Many were bitten and were perishing. And the Lord told Moses to make a snake out of bronze and lift it on a pole. And those who were bitten were instructed to look upon that snake, upon the pole, and find healing. So that it was God's way of saving people who were perishing out there in the desert. And so the gospel writer John picks up this parallel and points to Jesus being lifted high on a cross, saving an entire world, bestowing healing upon a sin-sick world. Just as a snake on a pole in the wilderness was a sign of God's love, of God's desire to rescue, to save all, so how much more the cross of Christ lifted up for all to see here, here is the supreme sign of God's healing, saving intent, and his intent is to save everybody. And when the cross is lifted up, there is incredible drawing power. Later, Jesus was to say, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In the words of that old hymn, 
Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction to me. And have you felt the attraction of the cross as you've thought about what it means and what it means for you personally? That the Lord Jesus Christ came down from his heavenly throne and came down and took on human flesh, became obedient as a servant, walking in our shoes, suffering in a way that we suffer, dying for us that we might truly live unto God? Have we taken that personally? That, that is, if, if we were the only people, if we were the only one left on earth, God would still go to such lengths to die for us if it meant that we could live in right relationship with him again. And now the gift of eternal life is for all those who accept the gift of salvation, who receive him into their heart and into their life. For he alone is the way out. He alone is the way to salvation. So lifted up on the Roman cross to die, he spelled love, L-O-V-E, with his own blood in a way that humanity has never seen it spelled. So look up to the cross and be drawn by the power of his love. Look upon the cross and see that man who has a name, Jesus, suffering there in pain for you. For he took upon himself our sins and the sins of the whole world that we might be restored to relationship with the Father. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross, his arms outstretched, wanting to embrace us, and he invites us, come, come to me. Or you who are weary and are heavy laden, all you who are sin-sick, who want healing and wholeness in their life, come to me. So he beckons to us from the cross, come, experience my love. And the cool thing is you don't have to be perfect to come to the cross because Christ died for those who don't deserve it. You don't have to have your personal act all together. In fact, when you come to the cross, the ground is level. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so really all we can do is bring to the cross our need for forgiveness and for grace. Our need for God. And know that he will accept us as we are, but he will never leave, he'll never leave us as we are. Because once we've accepted him into our heart and life and asked for his forgiveness, his Holy Spirit works within us to transform our lives so that more and more we become more like him. So each of us must make a personal response to the cross of Christ. We can pass by the cross in apathy, not caring about what transpired there, or we can take offense and walk away in hostility. Or we can take the cross to heart and recognize God's costly 
demonstration of unexpected love. And we can respond in faith and in trust, praying something like this. And maybe you could pray this with me. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by your love for me. You died for me and for my sins on a cross. You gave your all to me. And now as best I can, I give my all to you. In the words of that familiar hymn, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, come into my sin-sick heart and fill it with your healing love and grace. For I am yours. Amen. After explaining all the riches and blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, all the blessings that have come from the cross, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians expresses his wish for the Ephesians and also for the people in Muckle's Hill. He says, my response to all that God has done is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth, and I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all Christians the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. So the, the cross is a supreme sign of God's boundless love. And so may we appreciate all the more its extravagant dimensions. It is one giant plus sign. And what a great reminder of God's love for you and me. I think of a certain medieval monk who announced to the congregation that he was going to talk about the love of God the following Sunday evening. And so as on that, that evening came and as the shadows fell and light ceased to come through the great cathedral windows, the congregation gathered and in the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and carried it to the crucifix. And first of all, he illumined the, the crown of thorns. And then he illumined the two wounded hands. And then the wound in Christ's side. And in the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and walked away. There was nothing else to be said. Such a costly demonstration of unexpected love. Take that love to heart 
and live in the fullness of God. So may it be. Amen.